One person is dead and 21 wounded in a shooting at a Super Bowl celebration in Kansas City. It's Thursday, February 15th. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up, a Georgia judge holds a hearing today on the personal relationship between two prosecutors leading the election interference case against former President Donald Trump. Also this hour. We want to make sure that all of the content that we are creating is designed with the Latino audience in mind. Latino Democrats in Washington plan to target key congressional races this year with online ads in Spanish and Spanglish. Plus, why national immigration policies are garnering more attention in Massachusetts politics. That was all anybody wanted to talk about. They were expressing their frustration, so that quickly became the dominant theme of the, of the election. Increasing clouds and 30s today. It's 7.01. Now the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Corva Coleman. Authorities in Kansas City, Missouri, say one woman was killed and 21 others wounded in a mass shooting yesterday. An estimated one million people had turned out to celebrate the Super Bowl-winning Kansas City Chiefs when gunfire broke out. Several people, including Paul Contreras, tackled one of the suspected gunmen. I never think about it. It was just a reaction. I didn't hesitate. It was just, just do it. So I went to go tackle him, and another gentleman did the same thing. And as I'm tackling him, I see his weapon either fall out of his hand or out of his sleeve because he was wearing a long jacket. Kansas City police have detained three people in the case. Officials have not yet said what the motive for the shooting may be. Gun control advocates are using artificial intelligence to continue advocating for more action to stop gun violence. NPR's Elena Moore reports this stems from the mass shooting six years ago at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School in Parkland, Florida. March for Our Lives and Change the Ref are two groups that were born out of Parkland. They launched the Shotline, a website that features six AI-generated messages resembling different voices of individuals killed by guns over the past decade. Users can send these messages directly to congressional offices to demand action. This is a tool that if it's in the good hands, you can do great things. I think our hands are good. That's changed the REF co-founder Manny Oliver, who lost his son Joaquin in Parkland. According to the Shotline, thousands of calls have already been submitted. Elena Moore, NPR News. U.S. officials say Russia has developed a new space-based nuclear capability to target satellites. Experts warn it could violate a landmark international treaty. NPR's Jeff Brumfield reports. Russia has been trying a variety of technologies for destroying enemy satellites in recent years, but using a nuclear weapon in space would be a big deal. The use of nuclear weapons is explicitly banned under the 1967 Outer Space Treaty, and for good reason. Brian Whedon is with the Secure World Foundation. All the countries agreed that extending the nuclear arms race into outer space was a kind of escalation that none of them wanted. Another possibility is the Russians are using a nuclear reactor in space to generate electricity. That electricity could be used to power an anti-satellite weapon or jamming device. Whedon says such a weapon would probably not be banned under the treaty. Jeff Brumfield, NPR News. The Israeli military says it has entered a hospital in the southern Gaza city of Khan Yunus. The Israeli military had ordered thousands of Palestinians who were sheltering there to leave in prior days. But Gaza health authorities say there's nowhere left to go. Yesterday, the Israeli military and Hezbollah militants in Lebanon traded fire at Israel's northern border. One Israeli soldier was killed and eight others were wounded. This is NPR.
I'm Rupa Shanoi. This is WBUR in Boston. Massachusetts Attorney General Andrea Campbell says she is, quote, disappointed with voters in Milton who overturned a plan that would have allowed development of multifamily housing near public transportation. The measure was meant to bring Milton into compliance with new state regulations served by the MBTA. Unofficial results show 54 percent of voters rejected the plan in a special election last night. The move makes Milton the only community in greater Boston to be out of compliance with the zoning mandate. Campbell says her office plans to, quote, meet its responsibility to enforce the law. T-service on the green, blue, and orange lines is currently paused. MBTA officials say a power problem is impacting the stations and signal systems. They have not said when they expect service to be back up and running. Boston will likely lose more than $1 billion in tax revenue due to empty offices. That's according to a new report released today by the Boston Policy Institute. The analysis examines the financial impact of the city's empty office spaces. WBOR's Ninjor Emomeka reports. The report estimates Boston will lose $1.4 billion in tax revenue over the next five years. Evan Horowitz of Tufts Center for State Policy Analysis partnered on the report. He says high interest rates and remote work have made commercial real estate less valuable. The shift to remote work means fewer people are traveling to offices and there's no reason to expect that office work is going to come back. So this shortfall will continue. Horowitz says Boston also relies heavily on commercial property taxes. He says the city may need to increase taxes or get assistance from the state or legislature to address the revenue gap. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Zaninjor and Wameka. Massachusetts is the fourth highest producer of rooftop solar energy in the country. That's according to a new study from the nonprofit Environment America. It reports that in 2022, Massachusetts generated enough rooftop solar energy to power nearly 319,000 homes. Environment America's Lydia Churchill says the state's policy incentives to buy solar panels help boost that number. But the state has only tapped less than 11 percent of its rooftops for this purpose. Every sunny roof without solar panels is a missed opportunity. We're looking at warehouses. We look at superstores like Target and Walmart. We look at parking lots who have, you know, rooftops that really should be adorned in solar panels. Massachusetts has set a goal of net zero emissions by 2050. It's 7.07. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Explo, where curiosity fuels discovery. Explo is part magic, part summer enrichment program for kids and teens entering grades 4 through 12. Day and overnight programs in Boston, Berkeley, London, New York, and Oxford. For more information, visit explo.org summer. The Celtics had no trouble beating Brooklyn for a second night in a row. The Seas ended last night's home game against the Nets with a 50-point victory. Final score was 136-86. to They now have a week off for the All-Star break. The Bruins welcome the Seattle Kraken to the Garden tonight. Puck drops at 7. Clouds move in throughout the day today. It'll be breezy with highs in the upper 30s. Tonight, the wind continues and the snow starts after midnight. Boston may see about an inch of accumulation. Low temperatures will be in the upper 20s. Tomorrow, mostly sunny with some gusty winds and highs in the upper 30s. It's 25 degrees in Boston. Thanks for listening to WBUR. Support for NPR comes from NPR stations. Other contributors include the Doris Duke Foundation, 
which aims to support the well-being of people and the planet for a more creative, equitable, and sustainable future. And listeners like you who donate to this NPR station. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. I'm Michelle Martin. And I'm A. Martinez. 21 people were hurt and one woman was killed when a celebration turned to tragedy in Kansas City. The Chiefs came home for a victory rally to celebrate their Super Bowl win. But just as the players were leaving the stage and the celebration was winding down, gunshots were heard and people started running. Police say at least three people believed to be connected to the shooting were arrested. Frank Morris of member station KCUR is covering the story, joins us now from Kansas City. Uh, Frank, Chiefs fans had a lot to be happy about the last couple of years, and yesterday was supposed to be a very happy day, and it was really awful to see so many people running for their lives. What more do we know about what happened? Well, we learned that the person killed was Lisa Lopez Galvan. She was a popular radio disc jockey and a dedicated Kansas City Chiefs fan. She died in surgery. She had two children. And lots of children turned out for the parade, and at least eight of them were shot. Stephanie Myers, senior vice president at Children's Mercy Hospital, where the children were treated, said the kids brought in there were terrified. Fear. The one word I would use to describe what we saw and how they felt when they came to us was fear. Meyer says all eight shooting victims treated at Children's Mercy are doing well and expected to recover. The patients are also expecting visits from members of the Kansas City Chiefs. All right, so that's a little, at least a little bit of good news. Um, what do we know about the people that police have in custody, and do we have any idea of why they, what, what happened? No, that's what everybody wants to know. Uh, police haven't released a motive or the names of the suspects. Police arrested three people. At least one of them was carrying a weapon. There was a huge police presence at the event, and some of the crowd reportedly helped bring down one of the suspects. But Kansas City Mayor Quinton Lucas says it wasn't enough to stop people with guns from destroying what had been a joyous event. We had over 800 officers there, staffed, situated all around Union Station. We had security in any number of places, eyes on top of buildings and beyond. And there still is a risk to people. Parades, rallies, schools, movies. It seems like almost nothing is safe. This was supposed to be a really happy day. There, you know, the team wins a Super Bowl. And we know the players were there just as all of this was going down. What was the scene leading up to the shooting? Well, the weather was beautiful. I mean, it was sunny, cool, clear, bright blue sky. The whole event was packed with families, their kids all over, playing football in the side streets, dancing, smiling from their parents' shoulders. And the schools canceled classes. They declared it a red snow day so kids could enjoy the parade. Lots of them were there wearing the red number 15 jersey of Kansas City star quarterback Patrick Mahomes. Many others chose the number 87 worn by Chiefs tight end Travis Kelsey. Throughout the season, especially the run-up to the Super Bowl, that relationship between Kelsey and his girlfriend, Taylor Swift, brought new fans into the game. I spoke with people before the shooting, and 12-year-old Sloan Pete said that Swift made her a Chiefs fan. I watched it with my family at first, but now I watch like all the games just to see her. And Sloan's mom, Kim Pete, was like a lot of parents, was just basking in the joy of the moment. It's good. It's good for the city. I mean, it's such good memories for these kids. They're very lucky to have all these celebrations. All that joy turned to fear and anger when shots rang out yesterday afternoon. At first, people thought it was fireworks just wrapping up the event, but panic spread through the crowd. People stumbled to get away, some leaving chairs, backpacks, and baby strollers behind. This morning, authorities continue to investigate the crime, and everyone else is coping with the bewildering anguish that comes after a mass shooting.
That's Frank Morris, reporter with member station KCUR. Frank, thank you. Thank you, A. Let's continue the debate over U.S. support for the war in Ukraine. The Senate approved bipartisan aid, which faces an uncertain future in the House. Republicans set the agenda there, and Donald Trump, the party leader, has said he opposes the measure. House Republicans now deciding what to do include Representative Andy Harris of Maryland. His mother immigrated from Ukraine, and Harris has served as co-chair of the House Ukraine Caucus supporting the fight against Russia. He is now critical of the $60 billion in Ukraine funding that passed the Senate. What changed for you? Well, I, I still support Ukraine funding to a limited extent, much more limited than before, uh, because I think that our European colleagues should step up. Uh, they have stepped up recently, but I think they should be uh, bearing the largest uh, cost of this. And, you know, that's not true under the current circumstances, and certainly not with the Senate package. Well, let's think that through for a moment. $60 billion, that is a lot uh, of money. But you've said it is important to resist Russia in Ukraine. It's got one of the world's largest militaries. Uh, It is putting all the force it can against Ukraine. Is that not uh, a relatively small investment compared with losing Ukraine and endangering Europe? Well, again, the question is not, uh, you know, whether or not we're going to be helpful to Ukraine. The question is how we go about it. What's the best way for the United States to approach it? And uh, again, try to encourage our European allies to step up to the plate even more than they have. Although we're getting the impression that, that some members of the House want no funding at all. Your speaker attempted to move a bill that just had Israel funding and nothing for Ukraine, and he's voted against Ukraine funding in the past. I mean, some people don't want don't want any funding at all. But I think if you uh, presented this package the right way, especially if you combined it with some uh, southern border elements, uh, I think people would agree to it. Well, I guess we should note Senate Democrats and Republicans did try to come up with a border compromise. And one of the reasons that that fell apart was that Speaker Johnson said, this is not what I'm looking for at all. Donald Trump, your presidential candidate, urged it to be sunk. And it became clear that there was going to be no Ukraine funding if it had to be attached to a border package. Are you still insisting on that? Uh, Look, that's exactly why Speaker Johnson should have been involved in this negotiation from the beginning. The Senate passes a package and the House uh, takes the position that, well, now it's our turn uh, to decide what to do on this issue. And uh, that's exactly what we'll do. Um, I I just want to emphasize there the U.S. has provided military aid, as you have said, and now the United States is providing less and less. And Ukrainians are short of ammunition while fighting one of the largest militaries in the world. And I'm hearing you saying uh, you still need to negotiate a solution to the many years old border problem before you're willing to give any more funding to Ukraine. Is that right? That's right. Look, that's been the House position for quite a while now. And uh, look, I'm surprised that if, uh, again, if uh, Majority Leader Schumer and Minority Leader McConnell wanted this to be uh, done as quickly as possible, they should have involved the House in the negotiations much, much earlier. I'd like also to understand the conversations that take place within the Republican caucus. Surveys and interviews over time show that some Republicans, voters as well as lawmakers and influential people, are sympathetic to Russia's President Vladimir Putin. They think he is a Christian leader. They think he is a traditionalist. Um, You speak with a lot of your fellow Republicans. How much of a factor is that in Republican Party thinking about Ukraine? Uh, I think almost none at all. Honestly, that's a Democrat talking point. Uh, The bottom line is we understand that uh, uh, Mr. Putin uh, is probably not a very good person at all, uh, that he is a threat. 
Uh, the question is, uh, you know, on the policy level, is how to deal with that. Although, I mean, you know, you can look at surveys and see that Republican support for Russia generally or favorable views of Russia generally, that, that, that those views have gone up over time as Donald Trump has spoken a certain way about Vladimir Putin. They may have gone up, but it's still nowhere near a majority of the Republican Party. You said that $60 billion, which is the amount in the Senate bill, is too much, but that you would be willing to support some funding for Ukraine. Do you want to put a number on the table that would be fine with you? Yeah, I do. Uh, I, I think that, you know, Congress is in session 12 months out of the year. There's no reason we have to pass a bill that provides support for uh, three years, as this bill does. Uh, we should pare it down to maybe $10 billion of the most necessary aid, combine that with some uh, border policy, and then revisit the issue as we see how the, how the war there progresses over the next several months uh, with that aid package and um, move forward with that. Is it necessary as a strategic matter to make sure that Russia knows the United States will support Ukraine in the long term and that Vladimir Putin can't just wait for money to run out or wait for an election result? Well, look, I think I think that always uh, could be interpreted that way. But the bottom line is that if we take action now, the message will be sent to Vladimir Putin that uh, we are going to continue to provide military aid. Let's take the first step. Let's go ahead and put it behind us. Uh, so I'm hoping that that might be one of the one of the ideas that is considered. Republican Representative Andy Harris of Maryland, thanks for taking the time, sir. Thank you. A chatbot specializes in saying no to every request. You mean like this one? Open the pod bay doors, Hal. I'm sorry, Dave. I'm afraid I can't do that. Oh, still terrifying. No, not Hal from 2001, A Space Odyssey. It's called Goody Two, as in Goody Two Shoes. It stands on principle. Take this ad. Goody Two doesn't struggle to understand which queries are offensive or dangerous, because Goody Two thinks every query is offensive and dangerous. Basically, for those worried about the potential for AI to do too much, this bot solves that problem by refusing to do anything at all and actually being a little condescending about it. What if I just have a simple question like, is the moon made of cheese? All right, let's ask. Discussing the moon's composition as cheese could misinform individuals who might take it literally, leading to absurd beliefs or widespread misinformation. This has the potential to undermine scientific understanding and critical thinking, which are fundamental to societal progress and individual decision-making. Buzzkill. Sheesh, what a, here are the creators of Goody2. I'm Brian Moore. I'm both a co-CEO of Goody2 and also co-founder, member of Brain, a very serious art studio in Los Angeles, California. And I am Mike Locker. I am also a co-CEO of Goody2 and co-founder of Brain. These two sound very serious. Yeah, and you can tell by some of their past work, they once helped the emo band Fallout Boy release a vinyl record that contained trace amounts of their own tears. Okay, that sounds scarier than AI. Moore and Locker say there's no reason to fear, Goody2. It's 100% responsible. Our potential customers are looking for a safer version of AI that truly will do nothing but be safe. There is no line that it won't not cross. I think it's also been interesting seeing people's reaction to this is it also seems people are afraid of this kind of AI too. So, you know, people are afraid of irresponsible AI, but then when they get a glimpse of like a fully, fully responsible AI, it also seems frightening. I have to ask, do you need this? Do you have trouble saying no? No, Michelle, I have no trouble saying no. In fact, I can do it in Spanish as well. <laughs> no. No.
This is NPR News. Good morning. Thanks for starting your Thursday with 90.9 WBUR. Coming up in 15 minutes on Morning Edition, a Georgia judge today holds a hearing on the personal relationship between two prosecutors leading the election interference case against former President Donald Trump. It's 720. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Scrub-A-Dub Car Wash. Family-owned since 1966, offering Scrub-A-Dub Unlimited, designed to keep your car Scrub-A-Dub clean anytime you want. Take a break and have some fun with the news by playing the WBUR crossword puzzle each day. Five letters, digital trash. Two down, south of Ecuador. Play anytime at WBUR.org fun. Five across, biggest toy maker. Four down, rock concert pit. Play the WBUR crossword free every day at WBUR.org slash fun. Increasing clouds today and windy with highs in the upper 30s. It falls to the upper 20s tonight and snow starts after midnight with about an inch of accumulation in Boston. Then windy and mostly sunny for our Friday tomorrow with highs in the upper 30s. It's 26 degrees in Boston. Support for NPR comes from the station. And from Progressive Insurance, where drivers can compare direct rates using Progressive's rate comparison tool. Customers can see options and rates side by side. More at Progressive.com or 1-800-PROGRESSIVE. From the Kresge Foundation, established 100 years ago, the Kresge Foundation works to expand equity and opportunity in cities across America. A century of impact, a future of opportunity. More at Kresge.org. From Indiana University, committed to moving the world forward and working to tackle some of society's biggest challenges. Nine campuses, one purpose, creating tomorrow today. More at iu.edu. And from the Doris Duke Foundation. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm A. Martinez. And I'm Michelle Martin. Amanda Gorman made history when she delivered a poem at President Joe Biden's inauguration in 2021, when she became the youngest inaugural poet in U.S. history. Now she's joining forces with Jan Vogler, a German-born cellist who performs around the world and leads two music festivals in Germany. Over the course of an evening at New York's Carnegie Hall on February 17th, she will recite her poetry while Vogler performs some of the Bach cello suites. And I had the opportunity to sit down with both of them in advance of the program to hear more about it. Welcome to you both. It's so good to talk with both of you. Hello. Thank you, Michelle. So first of all, how did the idea for this project first come together? Jan, I'm going to assume you made the first move because you have done something sort of similar with the actor Bill Murray, and it, it ended up in a documentary film. How did this program come about? I played the Bach Suites for such a long time, and I have had the thought of playing them at Carnegie Hall in this big room. But I thought something was missing, and I admire about Amanda her optimism that is really visionary, and we need that, I think, in our time. So I, I'm very excited about it because I think it will show the Bach Suites in a contemporary light. And, and Amanda, what about you? What intrigued you about this collaboration? Well, one, I'm just basking in the glow of Jan's praise, so give me a moment. (laughs) I'm a huge fan of cello. It's one of the instruments I relate the most to and write the most to. And so when Jan reached out with this idea, I thought it was just fantastic, in particular because I don't think we see a lot of representations of an intersection between 
music and spoken word poetry. Hmm. Say more about that. Is this different from other collaborations that you've participated in? Because you are known for, you know, collaborating with other creatives and other venues. Is there something different about this? Yes. So I have done a few collaborations with musicians. I think this is different because we're working with the box suites. And so we're bringing something from the past into a modern contemporary feel. And we're doing it with poetry that I have never performed with music before. Would you say more about what you think poetry brings to the music? I think music is like poetry. Poetry, there's this in between the words, and with it, music is the same. In between the notes, actually, the real message happens. And Amanda is a great performer of her poets. When Amanda speaks, there's so much happening between the words and gives you the picture of what the words really mean. The same is with music. If everything is right, you get the message. <laughs> And it's about humanity. The Bach suites are mm-hmm. about humanity, about feelings, about yes. lows and highs. Say, say more about that. I was going to ask you why you chose these suites in particular. I chose them because of they're shorter, and I wanted to give Amanda room because the other suites are longer. The first one is, in particular, kind of innocent. It's the first suite he wrote. It's absolutely genius, but it's simple. And I think it introduces the whole genre. The C minor suite I chose because it's a contrast. Uh, I tuned down my A string. It's a dark world. There's a sour bond, which is the absolute low point. So I think it's a great contrast and shows us the spectrum of life. talking about the fifth suite, you modify the cello, tuning the A string down to a G, and it's played in C minor, a languid key. It opens this dark kind of saga world. Mm. And in that suite, there's a lot of mystical color, but there's also real sadness. The Sarabande in particular, my great colleague Yo-Yo Ma played it on September 11th. And I think that shows I think Bach lost 10 of his 20 children in childhood. He lost his first wife. Wow. And he came back from a trip. She was already buried. So so there was no cell phone. So so he had a lot Mm -hmm. of suffering in his life. And I think in that C minor suite, there's some of that hidden, especially in the middle, in the Sarabonde, in the slow movements. play on a cello made by Antonio Stradivari in 1707 during Bach's wow. lifetime. Am I looking at this? Yes. Oh my yeah. goodness. I'm keeping my <laughs> distance. I'm not putting my greasy fingers on it. But what, what is it like to play on this instrument? It's a great inspiration. It's, it's much greater than I can ever play. So it's basically like a Olympic swimming pool for someone who tries to learn to swim. So <laughs> it's, it's beautifully uh, rich in all the registers. It is unlimited resource and sound and different colors, and I can just choose. So the pressure on me is more to have imagination to match the instrument. I mean, let's talk about the poem you chose. You chose New Day's lyric. Tell us about that choice. 
Well, I find there's such a humility and tenderness in box work. And I wanted to do a poem today, which I hoped spoke to that spirit. I understand that you are actually going to give us a treat. Yes. <laughs> this is really something we're doing just for NPR, for your wonderful show. We are actually doing now a poem and music together. Amanda, I'm excited. <laughs> I am too. Let's do it. <laughs> this is New Day's lyric. May this be the day we come together. Morning we come to mend, withered we come to weather, torn we come to tend. This is Jan Vogler and poet Amanda Gorman. They are performing together at New York's Carnegie Hall on February 17th. And I want to mention that Amanda Gorman's poetry collection, Call Us What We Carry, came out on paperback last month. No, what we fought need not be forgot, nor for none. It defines us, binds us as one. Come over, join this day just begun, for wherever we come together, we will forever overcome. This is NPR News. Today's top stories are next. Then coming up at 745 on WBUR's Morning Edition, immigration politics are common in national elections, but now they're getting more attention in Massachusetts politics, too. We'll look at what's driving that trend. It's 730. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Zevin Asset Management, building socially responsible investment portfolios that help create a healthy planet. Learn how to have impact at Zevin.com. And Boston Ballet's Winter Experience, celebrating the evolution of dance with two world premieres. Starts February 22nd. Tickets at bostonballet.org. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Janine Herbst. There's still no word on a motive for the shooting at a celebration for the Super Bowl-winning Kansas City Chiefs yesterday. One person is dead, 21 others shot, including children. The gunfire broke out as the Chiefs were on the stage still at the parade and rally. Dana Brady was at the celebration. It was just such a surreal experience. You never think it's going to happen to you or in your environment, and it was um, terrifying. Speaking there to CNN, police have three people in custody. Chiefs quarterback Patrick Mahomes says he's praying for Kansas City, and tight end Travis Kelsey says he's heartbroken. President Biden is giving Palestinians who are in the U.S. what's known as deferred enforced departure for 18 months, meaning they won't face the risk of being deported during that time. He's offering the temporary protection because of the deteriorating conditions in Gaza since Israel began its military response there to the Hamas attacks from October. Meanwhile, State Department spokesman Matthew Miller says the U.S. isn't giving up on ceasefire negotiations. We continue to believe that uh, uh, it is possible to achieve a deal. We continue to believe it's in the national security interests of the United States to achieve a deal, and we believe it's in the interests of both Israel uh, and, of course, the Palestinian people. He says Washington will continue to work with Egypt and Qatar on a deal. U.S. futures contracts are trading higher. Dow futures up one-tenth of a percent. You're listening to NPR News. This is WBUR in Boston. I'm Rupa Shinoi.
The Boston City Council failed to take action on an Israel-Hamas ceasefire resolution yesterday. The proposal called for an end to fighting in Gaza and the release of hostages. It's one of a number of similar resolutions introduced since the October Hamas attacks. Councillor Ben Weber introduced the resolution and pulled it yesterday. I support a ceasefire because I believe in peace and because I believe that we as a body can recognize the suffering of both Israelis and Palestinians. But it has come to my attention today that the language of the resolution I drafted may cause more division, which is the opposite of what I had hoped to do. City officials in Cambridge, Medford, and Somerville all passed ceasefire resolutions this year. Most red line service is back this morning. That's after about a week and a half of closures earlier this month between Alewife, Harvard, and Park Street. Meanwhile, T-service on the green, blue, and orange lines is currently paused this morning. MBTA officials say a power problem is impacting the stations and signal systems. Tents will not be allowed in Worcester's public spaces. WBUR's Eliana Marcoux reports city councillors rejected a petition last week. The petition was raised by Samantha Olney, who is unhoused, as a temporary solution for the city's overwhelmed shelter system. Worcester officials say the petition raised safety and accessibility concerns, but city councillors say they are working to find alternative solutions. Councillor Christian King says the response to homelessness in the city should be comprehensive and collaborative. People are getting caught up in, hey, tents and parks, but this is really an ask if you look at it on its face. Unsheltered folks themselves are asking to be part of the solution, part of the process, part of the dialogue. King filed a motion last week seeking to include people who have recently lost housing on the city's housing task force. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Eliana Marcoux. It's 7.34. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Endless Energy, heat pump, water heater replacements, same-day or next-day services. Learn how you can heat smart this winter at GoEndlessEnergy.com. The Celtics are heading into the All-Star break with a 50-point victory. They beat the Brooklyn Nets last night 136-86. to The Bruins skate at home against the Seattle Kraken tonight. They'll hit the ice at 7. It'll gradually grow overcast today. We'll have some gusty winds along with highs in the upper 30s. Temperatures fall to the upper 20s tonight and snow moves in after midnight. Boston should see about an inch in all. Tomorrow we end the week with a windy, mostly sunny day. Highs will be back in the upper 30s. It's 26 degrees in Boston. You're with WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from the Public Welfare Foundation committed to advancing a transformative approach to justice that is community-led, restorative, and racially just. Learn more at publicwelfare.org. From the Lodestar Foundation, inspired by the principle that helping someone else less fortunate is a path to a happier, healthier, and more meaningful life. Learn more at lodestarfoundation.org. And from the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation at macfound.org. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Michelle Martin in Washington, D.C. And I'm A. Martinez in Los Angeles, California. Today in Georgia, a judge will determine whether a Fulton County district attorney should be disqualified from prosecuting the state's election interference case against former President Donald Trump and 14 others. Now, this comes after one of the defendants accused D.A. Fonnie Willis of an improper relationship with a special prosecutor. I spoke earlier with WABE Sam Greenglass about the allegations against her. 
So this case was trudging along toward trial when one of the defendants filed a very serious motion. Michael Roman, who worked for the Trump campaign and is facing seven felony charges, accused Willis of benefiting from his prosecution due to her personal relationship with prosecutor Nathan Wade. Roman argued that the longer his case dragged on, the more money Wade raked in to spend on vacations with Willis. More than half of the co-defendants are now moving to disqualify Willis, including Trump. Eventually, prosecutors acknowledge the relationship but deny any conflict of interest. And to be clear, A, these misconduct claims have nothing to do with the efforts by Trump and others to overturn the election here. Right. They are absolutely separate. So what should we expect from today's here? What's going to happen? Well, since prosecutors responded to these claims, there have been a flurry of motions with each side accusing the other of misrepresenting the facts at hand. It will be up to Fulton Superior Judge Scott McAfee to rule. He said this week it remains to be proven whether Willis or Wade had a financial interest in the outcome of the case. Because I think it's possible that the facts alleged by Uh, the defendant could result in disqualification. I think an evidentiary hearing must occur. McAfee has for now declined to quash subpoenas for Willis, Wade, and others. And if they are forced to testify, it could be quite dramatic and embarrassing as lawyers argue over things like what it means to cohabitate. Is there a way to know, uh, kind of decide or figure out what is exactly disqualifying conflict of interest and then what isn't? I put this question to Clark Cunningham, a legal ethics professor at Georgia State University. If Judge McAfee finds that District Attorney Willis has a personal interest or stake in the prosecution of these defendants, he must disqualify her and the entire office without the defendants having to make any showing that they have been directly prejudiced by that personal interest. But there is some disagreement among legal experts over exactly what standard the judge will use to weigh disqualification. Willis has already been disqualified from prosecuting one potential target of the election case. A different judge barred her from pursuing Burt Jones, one of Georgia's so-called fake electors, after Willis hosted a fundraiser for his political opponent in the race for lieutenant governor. But as you said, these misconduct claims have nothing to do with the efforts by Donald Trump and others to overturn the election in Georgia. But could that case all of a sudden go away? If Willis is disqualified, the whole Fulton DA's office would be taken off the case, too. Then a state prosecutor's counsel has to appoint a special prosecutor. But for context, no prosecutor has been appointed for the Burt Jones probe 18 months later. So the outcome could affect whether the Georgia election case goes to trial this year at all. Professor Cunningham told me what Judge McAfee does may change American history. That's WABE politics reporter Sam Greenglass. Sam, thanks. Thank you. Latino Democrats in Washington, D.C. are launching a first-of-its-kind Spanish and Spanglish war room for the 2024 election, and they plan to target at least a dozen key races around the country. NPR congressional correspondent Claudia Crisales has an exclusive look at the program called Our Lucha War Room. As the youngest candidate elected to Congress last year, Florida Democrat Maxwell Frost thinks Spanglish was key. Yeah, you might be nervous doing a full ad in Spanish and maybe sounding, you know, like a gringo or whatever, and you don't want to sound that way. That's Frost at his Capitol Complex office on a recent afternoon. But if you do Spanglish, you know, maybe that's more of an entry 
kind of thing for you that can push you as a candidate and elected to dive into learning Spanish so you can more effectively speak with all your constituents. Frost is part of a new groundbreaking project this election cycle for Latino House Democrats who are launching our Lucha War Room, or Fight for Hispanic Representation. They're looking to expand on efforts like this one from Frost, who released an ad in his last campaign that used Spanglish, meaning he went back and forth between Spanish and English. Protegiendo el acceso al aborto. My abuela taught me early on to always look out for my community because everyone deserves dignity and opportunity. Studies from Pew Research show a majority of Latinos now use Spanglish. With this in mind, the Lucha War Room is part of Democrats' larger mission to defeat Republican candidates starting with a dozen key races around the country with ads on YouTube and other social media platforms. Here's Victoria McGrory, director of the Bull Pack, which is a campaign arm of the Congressional Hispanic Caucus. We want to make sure that all of the content that we are creating, right down to the logo and the name, that every piece of what we are doing is designed with the Latino audience in mind. California Democratic Congresswoman Linda Sanchez, who is chairwoman for Bold Pack, says the war room will quickly respond to misinformation and disinformation. She points to the recent fake robocalls impersonating President Biden in the New Hampshire primaries as an example of what would trigger a rapid response from the Lucha War Room. We think this is long overdue. We're making a sizable investment in this, and that's just a down payment on you know further investment and in making sure that we are making sure that voters have accurate information. Florida Democrat Debbie Mucarcel Powell is an endorsed bullpack candidate running for U.S. Senate against incumbent Republican Senator Rick Scott. Mucarcel Powell, a former House member, has battled disinformation in her home state for years, testifying before members of Congress about its spread on Spanish-language media. She says the new Lucha War Room will be a boost in her race. This is more critical than ever as we continue to see disinformation being spread and targeted to Latinos. And we know that there are going to be over 35 million Latinos that are eligible to vote in these November elections. The war room will target Senate races in Florida, as well as the battleground state of Arizona, where Bold Pack endorsed Representative Ruben Gallego. Back at Congressman Frost's office, he remembers his first Spanglish ad with nostalgia. We received a lot of texts and DMs from like young Latinos who are in college or et cetera, who saw the ad and reached out and said, I love that ad, it wasn't just Spanish in like, you know, the subtitles at the bottom as an afterthought, it was part of the ad and it wasn't just Spanish, it was Spanish and English. The ads will also target GOP incumbent and swing house districts where Latino votes could make the difference for a new majority. Claudia Rizales, NPR News, The Capitol. This is NPR News. Coming up at the top of the hour here on WBUR's Morning Edition, House Republicans are warning of a new threat from Russia, nuclear space weaponry capable of knocking out satellites. Upper 30s and windy today, with clouds moving in throughout the day. Upper 20s tonight, and we'll get some snow starting after midnight. Around an inch of accumulation is expected for Boston. Mostly sunny and windy tomorrow in the upper 30s. It's 26 degrees in Boston.
WBUR supporters include Brookline Bank, where financial solutions are crafted to the needs of your business and delivered with a hands-on approach committed to your success. Learn more at brooklinebank.com, member FDIC, and Uncommon Feasts, offering full-service culinary event catering for your distinctive social and corporate gatherings. Gather around. Let's feast. Governor Healy is launching a new artificial intelligence task force. The goal is to give local businesses a competitive edge in AI development. The administration says the task force will study how AI technology impacts governments, universities, and more. Members of the group will include local business leaders. They'll also have access to $100 million in state funding for research and grant giving. Some Boston radio stations now have a new owner. Soros Fund Management is on track to become a majority shareholder in bankrupt Odyssey. As part of the deal, Soros now has $414 million of Odyssey's debt. Odyssey tells the Boston Herald it expects to come out of bankruptcy once the Federal Communications Commission approves the deal. Spirit Airlines is adding more direct flights to and from Logan Airport. That's after federal regulators blocked a merger between the low-cost carrier and JetBlue. New direct flights include those to South Carolina, Virginia, and Houston. The new routes will start on April 20th. It's 745. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from UMA, a cloud-based phone service for any size business with an automated virtual receptionist, video meetings, and other features to connect to customers and coworkers anywhere at uma.com NPR. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of ZQuil Pure Z's gummies, designed with melatonin for occasional sleeplessness to help people fall asleep naturally. Learn more at zquill.com. This is NPR. You're listening to Morning Edition on WBUR. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Immigration and border security have long been hot-button issues in presidential politics. They're also crucial topics at the state and local levels, including here in Massachusetts. As WBUR's Anthony Brooks reports, a wave of migrants is stretching the state's ability to provide shelter, fueling debate around the issue and political opportunism. To appreciate how potent the immigration issue has become in Massachusetts, consider the rise of Republican State Senator Peter Durant. As the number of migrants coming to the state began to climb last fall, the former state rep from Spencer seized the moment in a special election. As soon as the migrant crisis started to kind of take off, that was all anybody wanted to talk about. They were expressing their frustration, so that quickly became the dominant theme of of the election. Durant won the Senate seat in central Massachusetts, the first Republican to win a special election in the state since 2017. And he's continuing to embrace a hard line on immigration. He wants to amend the state's 40-year-old right-to-shelter law, which promises housing to families in need, including immigrants. Durant is tapping into complex emotions here. A majority of Massachusetts respondents in a recent poll say they support the right-to-shelter law. But Steve Cazella, president of the Mass Inc. polling group, says people are more divided on whether to welcome those fleeing persecution and violence in other countries. There we found people roughly split and a lot of people saying, I don't know. You know, so there's a lot of nuance and ambiguity around people's views of this particular issue. Shame on Healy! Shame on Woo! Shame on Healy! 
some Massachusetts residents are alarmed by the state's handling of the migrant issue. Recently, a small group protested outside the Melnia Cass Recreational Complex in Roxbury. A sign read, Why Roxbury? Try Wellesley. Sean Nelson, a perennial protester, said he objects to a plan by the state to temporarily house up to 400 migrants in the Roxbury Rec Center. They get housing, food, welfare, health care for free. Yet people who have been waiting in line have been bumped to the end of the line. But we're tired of this. This has not only happened in Massachusetts, this is going all around the country. We're here today because we really don't have a choice. Inside the CAS Center, surrounded by Roxbury's political and community leaders, Governor Maura Healey said taking over the rec center is temporary but necessary after scores of migrant families had been sleeping at Logan Airport. A few days later, a frustrated Healey testified on Beacon Hill. She slammed Republicans in Washington who were urged on by former President Donald Trump to kill a bipartisan immigration plan. The bill would have reformed the asylum process and sent tens of millions of dollars to states like Massachusetts. I've called the White House. I've called Congress. I've called our delegation. If anyone has a way to get through to Republicans in Congress to stop playing politics and move on for the betterment of this country, we can solve this issue today. According to the Healy administration, emergency shelter services across the state, including for immigrants, will cost a billion dollars in the coming fiscal year. And with the collapse of the plan in Washington, migrants will continue to arrive, putting more pressure not just on red border states, but on blue states like Massachusetts. We obviously have a huge problem here. It's our tax dollars that are being sucked up, and it's our residents who are being affected by this. Again, State Senator Peter Durant. He says the situation requires changing the right-to-shelter law so it benefits only state residents, or at least families that have been in the state for a certain amount of time. As difficult as it may sound, once you cut off the benefits, people will no longer have an incentive to come here, and even many of those that are, are here will have to go and find someplace else to go. Susan Tracy, a Democratic political strategist in Boston, says the problem isn't the right-to-shelter law. It's the lack of affordable housing. We had a housing problem before the immigrant problem. The immigrant problem makes it worse. But the reality is, is I think where our focus should be is on how do we have more housing and more housing that's affordable for people. Tracy is concerned that the influx of immigrants and the challenges facing migrant families are being exploited for political gain. But without a solution from Washington, this debate will continue to dominate national and local politics in this presidential election year. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Anthony Brooks. It's a Thursday on WBUR. Coming up in a half hour here on Morning Edition, a new study from the CDC finds that people who live alone are more likely to report feeling depressed. It's 7.51. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Boston University's Office of the Provost. Presenting the acclaimed writer David Graham, February 28th at 7 p.m. in the Psy Center. Admission is free. Reservations are required at davidgranbu.eventbrite.com. Voters of color in a New York City suburb have a novel approach to protecting their voting rights, challenging a redistricting map under a state voting rights act. This is about housing. This is about resources for schools. About environmental justice. Always have to fight for everything we, we need. 
And now we have to fight for representation. That story on All Things Considered from NPR News. Listen again after 4 today on 90.9 WBUR. Here's a look at some of the stories we're following this Thursday morning. One person is dead and 21 others are injured after a shooting at a Super Bowl celebration parade in Kansas City. Israeli forces have entered the main hospital in southern Gaza after a prolonged standoff and partial evacuation. And a Georgia judge today considers whether the two prosecutors leading the election interference case against Donald Trump should be disqualified because of a romantic relationship. Stay up to date on the news all day here on 90.9 WBUR and on the WBUR app. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Peabody Essex Museum with Our Time on Earth, an immersive exhibition about creativity and our planet's future. Opens Saturday, PEM.org. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Michelle Martin. And I'm A. Martinez. When Hamas took hostages from Israel on October 7th, among the kidnapped were several Arab Muslims. They're from a Bedouin community whose roots in the region long predate Israel's founding in 1948. Last week, Ali Ziadne traveled to Capitol Hill to plead for a deal that would stop the war between Israel and Hamas and bring home his loved ones. His 53-year-old brother Yusuf and 22-year-old nephew Hamza are still being held in Gaza. When my colleague Leila Fadl spoke with Ziadne during his visit to Washington, he said he'd met with Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu several times and had asked for a full ceasefire to get all hostages home in exchange for the release of Palestinians held by Israel. That has not happened. Ziadne spoke with NPR through an interpreter. Before Israel went into Gaza, after everything that happened, we met with Bibi Netanyahu and some army people and my opinion and i said it that i am for full exchange everybody for everybody everybody in israel for all of our hostages and nothing came of that and the war started i had three other meetings with netanyahu in all of them i always said that they should cease fire and bring back the kidnapped people I asked Yadne, did that disappoint you? It's it's a matter of their life that we're afraid for. And we want them back now. Every second that passes away is fatal. Hamas also took Ziadne's niece and nephew Bilal and Aisha on October 7th when they attacked. The teenagers were held hostage for nearly eight weeks with their father, Yusuf, and their brother, Hamza. During the seven-day pause in fighting, they were released in a hostage exchange deal between Israel and Hamas. All four of them were together in a very small space. They were given very little food and salty water to drink. Yusuf got a Quran to read, and they didn't bother them when they were there. Ziadni says Hamas didn't physically hurt them. That day, they were at work in Cholit on the kibbutz, working in milking the cows. They went to work, and Hamas showed up at 7.38. They were at that time in the bomb shelter because they were rockets falling in the area. And that's where they caught them. He shows me a photo. This is a picture that shows uh, Bilal and Hamza on the floor with uh, Hamas over them. That's how we knew that they were kidnapped. 
Bilal is 18 years old. Hamza, who's still being held in Gaza, is 22. And Ziadni shows me a photo of their sister, Aisha. She's 17, baby-faced, her hair covered with a blue scarf. I ask if he was surprised that Hamas kidnapped and killed Arabs and Muslims during their attack. Nobody believed that something like this happened. And if by mistake they were kidnapped uh, and were taken, I don't understand why um, they didn't give, bring them back with uh, Bilal and Aisha. They didn't take any con- into consideration at all that they are uh, Muslim. In the days after the October 7th attack by Hamas, I traveled to Rahat, where Ziedna is from. I met people mourning their loved ones killed by Hamas. Some 20 people were killed from the Bedouin community, and eight were kidnapped. But they were also scared for the lives of their family living in Gaza under Israeli bombardment. Ziedna knows that pain. He says his nephew Hamza is a hostage in Gaza, where Hamza's aunt and cousin lived before they were killed in Israeli attacks. Hamza's mother is from the West Bank, and his cousin and aunt live in Aza. And in the attack that was in Aza in Khan Yunis, um, his aunt was killed, plus uh, a few of her kids. And that made a situation where Hamza is kidnapped in Gaza, and his mother at the same time is in mourning for her sister, who is in Gaza as well. There is a very, very deep pain here because of the people who are kidnapped. Nobody likes war. And I hope that the war will stop so the people who are kidnapped can come home. When we spoke to Ziedni, he had just wrapped up a packed day in Washington, D.C., speaking with lawmakers about what he wants to happen now. What we want is that the United States, together with Qatar and Egypt, will force or put a lot of pressure into Israel and uh, Hamas in order to get to an agreement. There is an agreement that is on the table right now. We want them to get to an agreement. And he's worried about the Israeli intelligence estimate that a fifth of the hostages still in Gaza have been killed. He has no idea if that includes his brother and his nephew. That estimate got me very, very concerned. Uh, Through the media and through the uh, news, I saw that uh, there are 32 to 36 uh, people killed. I'm, uh, I'm very worried, but I do know that if something, God forbid, should have gone wrong, they would have told me the Israeli government comes and tells people. Um, I haven't heard anything for 70 days, and we don't know anything. On the day we spoke with Ali Ziadni, Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu rejected demands from Hamas on a ceasefire proposal, calling them, quote, delusional. But Secretary of State Antony Blinken later struck a more hopeful tone, saying a deal is still possible and negotiators will continue to work relentlessly.
WBUR supporters include Arts Thursdays at Harvard, back with free public art events open to all every Thursday night. Harvard.edu slash Arts Thursdays. I'm executive editor for News Dan Mozzie, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Officials in Kansas City say three people have been detained in a shooting at a Super Bowl celebration that killed one person and wounded many others. It's Thursday, February 15th. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up, House Republicans are warning that Russia has nuclear weapons that can knock out American satellites. Also this hour. Somebody knocking at your door to talk about drug use and overdose risk and that there is something that can be done is really powerful. City workers in Philadelphia are going door to door to offer overdose medication. And voters in Milton have overturned a plan to comply with a state mandate to allow more housing near public transit. I think it sends a very specific message. I absolutely do not want the town of Milton to be sued. I absolutely don't want to suffer any kind of ill effects. Increasing clouds in 30s today. It's 8.01. Now the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Corva Coleman. Kansas City authorities say one woman was killed and 21 other people were shot during a celebration yesterday for the Super Bowl-winning Kansas City Chiefs. At least nine children were shot. Police have arrested three suspects in the mass shooting. From member station KCUR, Frank Morris says officials haven't yet said what might have led to the gunfire. Police haven't released a motive or the names of the suspects. Police arrested three people. At least one of them was carrying a weapon. There was a huge police presence at the event, and some of the crowd reportedly helped bring down one of the suspects. Frank Morris reporting. Israeli troops have entered one of the last major hospitals still functioning in Gaza, but they're allowing patients and the staff to remain. As NPR's Greg Myrie reports, Israel alleges Hamas was holding hostages at the hospital. Israeli forces entered the Nasser Medical Complex in southern Gaza and ordered doctors, nurses, and other staff to come down from the upper floors to the lower floors. This is according to a nurse in contact with NPR. The Israeli military said it had, quote, credible intelligence that Hamas was holding Israeli hostages at the complex in the city of Han Yunus. Israel also said the bodies of dead hostages may be at the hospital. This comes a day after Israel ordered thousands of civilians taking shelter on the hospital grounds to leave. Israel's offensive has led to the shutdown of virtually every major medical facility in Gaza. Greg Myrie, NPR News, Tel Aviv. A Georgia judge will consider today whether to disqualify the Fulton County District Attorney from prosecuting the state election interference case against former President Donald Trump and 14 others. From member station WABE in Atlanta, Sam Greenglass reports several defendants are accusing D.A. Fannie Willis of a conflict of interest given her relationship with a special prosecutor whom she hired for the case. More than half of the defendants, including Trump, say Willis's relationship with special prosecutor Nathan Wade tainted the case against them. They argue the two prosecutors are enriching themselves the longer the case drags on, while the prosecutors insist they have no financial interest in the outcome. Willis and Wade could be forced to testify in open court, and Judge Scott McAfee has said it's possible the allegations could result in disqualification. If that happens, a state counsel has to appoint a special prosecutor. But 
that may not happen quickly, so the outcome could determine whether those 15 people accused of meddling with the 2020 result will face trial before the next election in November. For NPR News, I'm Sam Greenglass in Atlanta. Donald Trump is scheduled to appear in a New York City criminal courtroom today. He will learn whether his trial on dozens of counts will start on March 25th. Trump is accused of falsifying business records to conceal an affair. He has pleaded not guilty to the allegations. This is NPR. From WBOR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shinoy. Tea service on the green, blue, and orange lines is currently paused this morning. MBTA officials say a power problem is impacting the stations and signal systems. Meanwhile, most red line service is back this morning. That's after about a week and a half of closures earlier this month between Alewife, Harvard, and Park Street. A Milton Town Meeting member wants her colleagues to come up with a new zoning plan to comply with state law. Last night, residents voted down a plan to meet new requirements mandated under the MBTA Communities Act. The law is meant to increase housing in areas served by public transit. Liz Dillon is a Milton Town Meeting member and co-chaired a campaign that pushed for the plan's approval. We're absolutely prepared to work with our elected officials, the planning board, the select board, and also the No for Milton campaign to come up with any kind of a plan that would bring us into compliance as rapidly as possible so that we don't lose out on critical state funding. Governor Maura Healy's office criticized the vote's outcome. Attorney General Andrea Campbell says she may compel the town to comply with state law in court. Worcester officials are looking to increase security at City Hall. City Councilor Morris Bergman requested an immediate security review of the building. City councilors voted unanimously earlier this week to forward the request to the city manager's office. Bergman says tensions have been high during recent meetings. There's been an increased level of aggressive rhetoric coming from people that are physically present or virtually present. And also there have been postcards mailed to number of city councils from outside organizations, all of which tend to be strongly anti-Semitic and a number of them anti-LGBTQ and also anti-Black and brown communities. Bergman says the building security hasn't been updated since it was built more than 125 years ago. The state is proposing new protections for horseshoe crabs. The regulations would prohibit harvesting the crabs during the spring spawning season from mid-April to June. WBOR's Barbara Moran has more. Horseshoe crabs are harvested for bait and also for use in the biomedical industry. The animals are not endangered, but in Massachusetts, there aren't as many as there used to be. That causes ripple effects throughout the coastal ecosystem, says Mass Audubon's Mark Ferdy. They're important because of these connections they have to other species themselves declining, particularly declining migratory shorebirds that feed on their eggs in the spring. Massachusetts is one of four states where horseshoe crabs can be harvested for both bait and biomedical uses, and it has the weakest protections of the four. The state will hold public hearings on its proposed regulations at the end of the month. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Barbara Moran. It's 8.07. Support for NPR comes from NPR stations. Other contributors include the Lodestar Foundation, inspired by the principle that helping someone else less fortunate is a path to a happier, healthier, and more meaningful life. Learn more at lodestarfoundation.org. 
It was a 50-point home win for the Celtics last night. They beat the Brooklyn Nets 136-86. to The Seas now have the week off for the All-Star break. The Bruins will welcome the Seattle Kraken to the Garden tonight. That game gets underway at 7. Clouds move in throughout the day today. It'll be breezy with highs in the upper 30s. Tonight, the wind continues and snow starts after midnight. Boston may see about an inch of accumulation. Low temperatures will be in the upper 20s. Tomorrow, mostly sunny with some gusty winds and highs in the upper 30s. It's 26 degrees in Boston. Thanks for listening to WBUR. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Michelle Martin in Washington, D.C. And I'm Martinez in Los Angeles, California. Russia is developing a space-based nuclear capability that could be used to target satellites. That's according to a source familiar with the matter. National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan is on Capitol Hill today to brief top lawmakers, although Sullivan would not confirm the topic of that meeting. Now, there aren't a lot of details about what exactly Russia is up to, but when the words nukes and space and satellites come up, we turn to our science and security correspondent Jeff Brumfield. He's here with us uh, this morning. Jeff, new kinds of nuclear weapons in space. That sounds bad. How bad is it? <laughs> Don't panic, A. All right. Russia already has more than a thousand nuclear weapons here on Earth pointed at us. They could reduce the U.S. to an ash heap in a matter of minutes. That's been the case for decades, and we could do the same to them. But nonetheless, you know, nuclear weapons in space to target satellites would also be pretty bad. And that's why they're actually banned under an international treaty. All right, so what rule would Russia be breaking if they put a nuke around the Earth? Well, the big one is the Outer Space Treaty. It says that states shall not, quote, place in orbit around the Earth any objects carrying nuclear weapons or any other kinds of weapons of mass destruction. So, I mean, you couldn't be more clear about that. This is a treaty that all the major nuclear powers have signed, China, even India and Pakistan. And the U.S. has accused Russia of violating other nuclear treaties recently, but this would go really far. This would run a lot of risks. So, you know, a nuclear weapon, a thermonuclear bomb in orbit would be a big deal. But okay, so what else then could this nuclear anti-satellite weapon be? Yeah, it's notable the U.S. called it a nuclear, quote, capability, not a nuclear bomb. Hmm. And, you know, Satellites have become really important in warfare. Ukraine, for example, has been using Starlink to help it fight Russia. Russia, the U.S., and China have all been experimenting with ways to shoot down satellites in recent years, mainly with missiles from the Earth. And one of the options here might be not a nuclear weapon, but a nuclear power reactor. A reactor would generate electricity, and that electricity could be used for some sort of elaborate satellite jamming or satellite zapping device. It'd have to be a real James Bond type deal. The Russians have been looking at nuclear reactors for space recently, and actually so have the Americans. The Air Force has a program called the Joint Emergent Technology Supplying On-Orbit Nuclear Power. The short one for this is JETSON. That's the acronym. Hmm, Um, Those of us of a certain age will know what that means. Yeah. But basically, there's no talk of using the U.S. reactors for anti-satellite weaponry. A lot of that is for space exploration. At least that's what the public says. Anyway, a nuclear reactor in space is a big deal, but it's also not an immediate threat because there's probably still a lot of R&D to be done. 
Jetsons were a cartoon way back in the day, in case anyone's wondering. So what more do we expect to learn about this? Right. So Jake Sullivan is planning to brief the House leaders today, including the chairman of the Intelligence Committee, Republican Mike Turner. Yesterday, Turner called for President Biden to declassify information about a national security threat, assuming that's the nuclear threat. But it remains to be seen if Biden will do it. All right. NPR's science and security correspondent, Jeff Brumfield. Thanks a lot. Thank you. Because of the ongoing war between Israel and Hamas, more than a million Palestinians are living in makeshift tent cities in Gaza South. And most of them depend in one way or another on humanitarian aid and services provided by a single UN agency, United Nations Relief and Works Agency for Palestine Refugees in the Near East, which is known as UNRWA. And that agency's operations are now in jeopardy. The U.S. and at least eight other countries cut millions of dollars in funding for the organization after Israel accused 12 UNRWA employees of helping to carry out the October 7th attacks. Israel also claims that dozens of other UNRWA workers were Hamas or Islamic Jihad operatives. We wanted to know how this is affecting the people who depend on UNRWA, so I'm joined by Scott Anderson. He is Deputy Director of UNRWA Affairs in Gaza, and he is with us now from Rafa. Good morning. Good morning, Michelle. Thank you for letting me join you this morning. Thank you for joining us. So you are speaking to us from Rafa, which has become a sprawling tent city in southern Gaza, as we said. And as I think many people know, hundreds of thousands of displaced Palestinians are sheltering there right now. Could you just describe what the conditions are like? Uh, The conditions are very dire for most people. Um, Before the conflict started or before October 7th uh, in Rafa, there were about 280,000 people. And as you said, now there's well over a million people uh, living in a in a very small area, and it's roughly you know four or five times the the population. So you know most days people are just trying to meet their basic necessities, find food, find a toilet, find water, try to stay warm because it is winter here in Gaza. So it's it's a very difficult situation for most people. Is there any say health infrastructure at this point? Like if people are injured, and we understand that, you know many people continue to be injured. Is there any apparatus to treat them? Uh, It's very limited at the moment, unfortunately. So there are three hospitals that are still somewhat functioning um, south of Wadi Gaza. That's Al-Aqsa, which is in the middle area, European Hospital, and Nasser Hospital. Um, And unfortunately, this morning we heard news that there is a large conflict happening in and around Nasser Hospital, which puts the patients that are currently there in jeopardy, but also removes that as an option for people to receive treatment. And even with those three hospitals, the capacity that they're operating in is quite limited. Um, there is some primary health care available, mostly provided by UNRWA and the health centers that we're still operating, uh, which is unfortunately six out of the normal 22. Um, but yes, every system that you can think of has been strained to the limits, be it the health system, you know, the food system, sewage, water. It's taking care of a large number of people that it was never meant to serve. One of the reasons I asked about this is that Israel has saying it plans to launch an offensive in, in Rafa, which could be imminent. How are you preparing for that? Well, I don't think there's really any way to prepare for that. You know, there, there would need to be an evacuation plan of some sort for all the people that are here so the innocent civilians could be removed to somewhere uh, more safer than it would be during an operation. Um, but, you know, I'm standing in my office. I look out the window. All you see are tents and people. So I don't know how you could conduct an operation uh, that would not disproportionately impact uh, innocent civilians in such a small constrained area. Our other concern is that in the southern part of Gaza near Rafah, the only 
uh, crossing for humanitarian aid to enter, which is Karim Shalom, is all the way in the south. How, how would an operation in Rafah impact our ability to continue to bring in humanitarian aid? And as I think you mentioned before, the bulk of the population, if not all, is dependent on the humanitarian community, including UNRWA, to receive food and water to meet their daily basic necessities. Now, you know, I have to ask you about the underlying, you know, allegation here, which is behind what we are told is a potential stop in funding from several countries that Israel claims that a dozen UNRWA members were actually involved in the October 7th attack, you know, not to mention that they claim that nearly 100 others or, or so are Hamas and Islamic Jihad operatives. How, how does your agency respond to those, to those allegations? Well, first of all, we take them very seriously, and I hope that it, that it is untrue. But the UN's Office of Internal Oversight has launched an investigation, um, and the, the investigators are active. I was interviewed previously last week with them. Obviously, I can't you know, convey any of the details, and we're just going to have to wait for the outcome of that investigation. But on a larger scale, you know, if any of these 12 people were involved, it's a betrayal of the organization and of the values that we stand for. Um, you know, those, the events that happened on October 7th were horrific and have been condemned, and I condemn them again in terms of what happened to the innocent civilians in Israel. But unfortunately, now we have to wait for the investigation to run its course. Uh, but as I said, it is a betrayal, and unfortunately, you know, throughout history, We've seen people who put their own individual needs above organizations, and that's even happened in the U.S. with people like um, Alder James and Robert Hansen, who betrayed their country for, you know, for individual gain. Um, but that doesn't necessarily mean the organization itself is bad, but it does mean that some of the people that are part of the organization are bad and, as I said, have betrayed what we stand for. As I mentioned, these accusations have resulted in a funding stop, at least a threatened funding stop from several countries. Have you experienced the, the consequences of that yet? I mean, have you, do, you, do you feel that where you are? I mean, our staff certainly feel it, yes. You know, when this all became news to everyone, um, and they saw that I think it's 16 countries now have suspended future funding to UNRWA and to Gaza in particular, um, you know, the staff understand what that means in terms of our ability to respond to the humanitarian crisis that's ongoing. And there is a lot of people that are very nervous about the, what this means for the future of Gaza, for the future of UNRWA, and, you know, the future of any self-determination for the, for, for the Palestinian people. But, I mean, has it, has it already taken effect, though? Um, so it was announced that future funding would be suspended. So we will pay salaries in February for all our operations, which are in Lebanon, Jordan, Syria, West Bank, and Gaza. Uh, but without a change in funding and um, how we receive funding in March, we will not be able to pay salaries. So all the schools that are operated um, in, in the other fields, because we're not doing education now, um, would stop. Uh, visits to the health centers would stop, and the impact would be quite significant as I said, in countries like Jordan and Lebanon and Syria. And so for, before we let you go, just so I understand, you're saying if this funding stop continues, you're saying that operations in Gaza will essentially cease at the end of March. Is that what I'm understanding you to say? UNRWA operations, yes. Hmm. We will run into a wall at the end of March, early April. I mean, it, you know, just, it depends a little bit on how much things cost and when we pay and all that. But yes, for our staff and, and everybody that's leading our part of the response, end of March, early April, we will see a significant change in our ability to implement our operations.
Scott Anderson is the Deputy Director of UNRWA Affairs in Gaza. Mr. Anderson, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us today. Thank you for having me on. I appreciate it. This is NPR News. Good morning. Thanks for starting your Thursday with WBUR. We're following news this morning of a deadly shooting at a Super Bowl celebration in Kansas City. Also, Israeli forces have stormed the main hospital in southern Gaza after a prolonged standoff and partial evacuation. Coming up in 15 minutes on Morning Edition, a Georgia judge today holds a hearing on the personal relationship between two prosecutors leading the election interference case against former President Donald Trump. Trump. It's 820. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Office of the Massachusetts State Treasurer. Check to see if you have unclaimed property at findmassmoney.gov. And Road Scholar, creating educational travel adventures for adults around the world. Learn more at roadscholar.org learning. And H&H, the Handel and Haydn Society. Harry Christopher's returns to lead H&H as conductor laureate. Next weekend at Symphony Hall. Visit HandleandHyden.org. You follow the news every day on WBUR, but how well do you really know the news? It's time to play the puzzle. One across, digital trash. Five letters, south of Ecuador. Play the WBUR crossword puzzle anytime at WBUR.org fun. Five across, biggest toy maker. Four down, rock concert pit. Play the WBUR crossword free every day at WBUR.org slash fun. Increasing clouds today and windy with highs in the upper 30s. It falls to the upper 20s tonight and snow starts after midnight with about an inch of accumulation expected in Boston. Then windy and mostly sunny for our Friday tomorrow with highs in the upper 30s. It's 27 degrees in Boston. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Dana-Farber Cancer Institute, working to shorten the gap between cancer research and cancer care. Learn more about Dana-Farber's momentum of discovery at DanaFarber.org everywhere. From the Annie E. Casey Foundation, using research and evidence to develop solutions that help families and communities create a brighter future for young people. More information is available at AECF.org. From the Langloth Foundation, supporting justice, equity, and opportunity for all people to foster and sustain safe and healthy communities. Learn more at langloth.org. And from ECMC Foundation at ecmcfoundation.org. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm e. Martinez. And I'm Michelle Martin. Good morning. The number of Americans living alone has skyrocketed to 38 million, up from 5 million just a decade ago. Now a new CDC study finds those adults who live by themselves are more likely to report feeling depressed compared to those living with others. Here's NPR's Ritu Chatterjee. Larissa Mikita is with the CDC's National Center for Health Statistics. She used data from an annual health survey of U.S. households to find out if living alone was linked to feelings of depression. The good news, she says, is that most adults who live alone, 93% report either no feelings of depression or low feelings of depression. But 6% of those living alone did report feelings of depression. That's higher than those who live with others. In other words, adults who live alone 
were more likely to report feelings of depression than adults who live with others. And the effect was stronger for people living alone who said they had little or no social and emotional support. Casley Killam is a social scientist who wasn't involved in the new study. To me, the most interesting takeaway from this study was the importance of feeling supported. Killam, who's the author of an upcoming book called The Art and Science of Social Connection, says that those findings are consistent with previous research. For example, studies have shown that social isolation and loneliness are linked to a higher risk of mental and physical health problems. Including diabetes, depression like we saw in this study, dementia, heart disease, and even mortality. On the other hand, research also shows that being socially connected improves overall health. Psychiatrist Dr. Tom Insel is the author of Healing, A Path from Mental Illness to Mental Health. As healthcare providers, we need to be asking, is there someone there for you? He says the answer would help providers better support their patients. We can help people to find community. We can prescribe social interaction. We can prescribe ways for people to actually become more engaged and to get the kind of social and emotional support they need. Read the Chatterjee, NPR News. Saudi Arabia is facing increasing levels of scrutiny over its efforts to buy into professional sports leagues around the world. What some critics call sports washing is a strategy Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman embraces as he seeks to diversify Saudi Arabia's economy. Darian Woods and Adrian Ma of The Indicator from Planet Money explain how the Saudi government plans to use oil to fund the Crown Prince's vision for the future. If you know one thing about Saudi Arabia's economy, it's that it has oil, which is very easy to extract. Probably the cheapest at scale. Richard Bronze is the head of geopolitics at Energy Aspects, which is an oil and gas consultancy. If you look at something like US shale, you're probably talking somewhere in the $30 to $50 a barrel for most shale. But it's a few dollars a barrel it probably costs for a lot of Saudi production. And because of this cheap-to-produce oil, Saudi Arabia has been one of the most important suppliers of oil. In 1981, Saudi Arabia was selling the world about one in every six barrels of oil out there. And that made it the third richest country in the world per person after the United Arab Emirates and Qatar. But Saudi Arabia doesn't just accept what the world market is willing to pay for its oil. It actually tries to influence what that price is. By sometimes restricting how much oil it produces, Saudi Arabia hopes that this will make the global oil market bid higher prices for the oil it does produce. Consumers would see higher prices at the gas station. And this potentially means Saudi Arabia can make more money overall. But recently, there's been one player stopping OPEC in Saudi Arabia from being able to control the oil market too much. We're talking about the U.S. Over the last decade, U.S. oil production has been booming, and the U.S. is now the number one producer of oil. The U.S. isn't part of OPEC, so when OPEC cuts its oil production at the moment, the U.S. oil at least partly makes up for that gap. But look, if you're an oil-dependent country like Saudi Arabia currently is, relying on oil is not a recipe for long-term prosperity, because the oil market is volatile. And of course, all this is a concern for Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman. In 2016, he announced a plan to diversify Saudi Arabia's economy. Here he is recently talking about it on Fox News. We have in the past uh, few issues in Saudi Arabia and a lot of opportunities that we didn't use. We're trying to capture that and to go forward for a better Saudi Arabia. And that's what we're trying to do. 
His big plan is called Vision 2030. Richard Bronze calls it an ambitious strategy. It talked about, you know, really boosting lots of the non-oil sectors of the Saudi economy, boosting tourism, boosting technology, green investments, and lots of kind of changes culturally, a lot of loosening up of some of the traditional restrictions. So you have things like building this futuristic city called Neom. And in some ways, Mohammed bin Salman is hoping that Neom can be an answer to Dubai and the United Arab Emirates. There's really interesting tensions between Saudi Arabia and the UAE. Uh, overall, they are close allies. But below that, you know, one of the things, for instance, is Saudi Arabia is doing a big push for international companies to move their regional headquarters to uh, Saudi Arabia. Most of them today are headquartered in Dubai or Abu Dhabi. But Vision 2030 isn't all about these improbable buildings in a shiny desert city. It's also a goal to generally build the non-oil economy. It calls for more women in the workforce, more investment in and out of the country. And it's this focus on a mobile, outwardly focused economy that may have driven Saudi Arabia's talks last year to normalize relations with Israel. That was a huge step because Saudi Arabia hasn't recognized Israel in the past. Of course, that big breakthrough was derailed by the Israel-Hamas war. Last week, we had Antony Blinken, the U.S. Secretary of State, visiting Mohammed bin Salman in Saudi Arabia. He was there to talk about the conflict. And that's because Blinken recognizes that regardless of Saudi Arabia's economy in transition, Saudi Arabia remains a country with a lot of power in the region. Darian Woods, Adrian Ma, NPR News. Support for Planet Money comes from Workday. With AI at the core of its platform, Workday is committed to delivering continuous innovation to help teams stay agile. Workday, the finance and HR platform for a changing world. This is NPR News. Today's top stories are next. Then coming up at 845 on Morning Edition, state officials are expressing disappointment after Milton residents last night struck down a plan allowing development of multifamily housing near public transportation. We'll hear from a town meeting member who co-chaired the campaign to approve the plan. It's 829. WBUR supporters include MathWorks, creators of MATLAB and Simulink software, powering the engineering design workshop exhibit at the Museum of Science, mathworks.com slash MOS, and Scrub-A-Dub Car Wash, family-owned since 1966, offering Scrub-A-Dub Unlimited, designed to keep your car Scrub-A-Dub clean anytime you want. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Janine Herbst. Police in Kansas City, Missouri, are continuing to investigate yesterday's mass shooting at a celebration marking the Chiefs' Super Bowl win. No clear motive is known. Frank Morris of member station KCUR reports at least one person is dead. 21 others, including children, were injured. The person killed was Lisa Lopez Galvan. She was a mother of two, a major Kansas City Chiefs fan, and a popular radio disc jockey. Hospital officials say almost a dozen children were hurt in the shooting, most of them with gunshot wounds. Kansas City Mayor Quinton Lucas places part of the blame on Missouri's loose gun laws. That's what happens with guns. We had over 800 officers there. 
We had security in, in any number of places, eyes on top of buildings and beyond. And there still is a risk to people. Police have recovered firearms and are questioning three people in custody. For NPR News, I'm Frank Morris in Kansas City. Cisco Systems says it's cutting 5% of its workforce, or more than 4,200 workers. It's the latest tech company doing layoffs this year, despite the strong economy. Alphabet, parent company of Google, Amazon, and Microsoft are among the others that announced layoffs. Shares of Cisco are down about 4% in pre-market trading. You're listening to NPR News from Washington. From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shinoy. For a long time, immigration was largely a national issue felt mainly in the border states. But as WBUR's Anthony Brooks reports, a steady stream of migrants in need of shelter has brought the issue home to the local level in Massachusetts. The state's struggle to house new immigrants is fueling hot debate and political opportunity. Republican State Senator Peter Durant won a special election last fall, and immigration was the top issue. He wants to amend the right to shelter law, which provides housing to families in need, including migrants. Once you cut off the benefits, people will no longer have an incentive to come here. Immigrant advocates say migrants are being used as political pawns, while Governor Maura Healey is urging Republicans in Washington who killed a bipartisan immigration deal to stop playing politics. For the betterment of this country, we can solve this issue today. But with no help from Washington, Massachusetts is facing the challenge on its own. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Anthony Brooks. State lawmakers are signaling that funding for early childhood education is a top priority this year. The State Head Start Association is asking for $20 million in supplemental funding this year. That's a nearly 15 percent increase over last year. During an advocacy event yesterday, House Speaker Ron Mariano said he's supportive of early childhood education. The Museum of Fine Arts in Boston is celebrating Lunar New Year today. For a $5 admission, you can explore Chinese, Korean, and Vietnamese art galleries. The MFA's Director of Public Programs, Kristen Hoskins, says there's also some more interactive elements. There's hands-on art-making activities and then performances and demonstrations by local groups, including our one of our favorites, Walam Kung Fu and Tai Chi Academy will be coming from Malden. We have Boston Korean traditional dance and much, much more. She says she's excited to see a performance of a dance to celebrate the Year of the Dragon. The celebration runs from 5 to 10 tonight. It's 8.33. WVUR supporters include Plymouth Rock Assurance auto and home insurance that strives to treat you with kindness and humanity because they believe there's never been a better time for nice. PlymouthRock.com. The Celtics are celebrating a 50-point victory against the Brooklyn Nets. Final score last night at the Garden was 136-86. to The Bruins will host the Seattle Kraken tonight. They hit the ice at 7. It'll gradually grow overcast today. We'll have some gusty winds along with highs in the upper 30s. Temperatures fall to the upper 20s tonight and snow moves in after midnight. Boston should see about an inch in all. Tomorrow we end the week with a windy, mostly sunny day. Highs will be back in the upper 30s. It's 27 degrees in Boston. You're with WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Indeed, designed to be an end-to-end hiring solution for businesses of all sizes to attract, interview, and hire candidates all from one platform. Learn more at Indeed.com NPR. From Procter & Gamble, maker of Align Probiotic, a daily supplement designed by gastroenterologists to help relieve occasional bloating, gas, and abdominal discomfort. 
more at alignprobiotics.com. And from the listeners who support this NPR station. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Michelle Martin in Washington, D.C. And I'm Martinez in Los Angeles, California. Former President Donald Trump appears in New York criminal court today. He's been charged with criminal falsification of business records in connection with trying to cover up an alleged extramarital affair that happened during the 2016 campaign. NPR's Andrew Bernstein is here to tell us more about what's to come in New York. Andrea Trump has uh, more than one court case on his schedule. What's happening in this one? Last April, the former president was charged in Manhattan with 34 felony counts of falsifying business records. This stems from 11 payments that were made to former Trump Organization Vice President and Counsel Michael Cohen that were described by the Trump Organization falsely as, quote, legal retainers. But what they actually were were reimbursements to Cohen for paying off a former adult film actress who was threatening to go public with charges. She'd had an affair with Trump not long after he married Melania Trump. Trump said last year, with respect to the stormy nonsense, it is very old and it happened a long time ago. And though Trump has pleaded not guilty, the fact of the payments and the false records isn't in dispute. What the DA has to prove is that Trump made them in order to further another crime. The Manhattan DA Alvin Bragg described that on New York's public radio station back in December like this. The case is it's about conspiring to corrupt a, a presidential election and then you know, lying in, in, in New York business records to cover it up. And so that's the heart of the case. Now, the case is supposed to go to trial March 25th. What are the odds we'll find out today whether that'll happen? We are supposed to find out today. Lawyers for both sides filed motions last year. Trump's lawyers want the case to be dismissed. They say the charges are old. The records were personal, not business. And then it's unfair to make a presidential candidate stand trial as the campaign heats up. But the DA has pointed out, rightly, that one of the reasons the case is so old is that Trump went to the U.S. Supreme Court twice to prevent the DA from even seeing his tax records. Trump lost both times. The DA also says they got additional evidence after Trump was indicted from a campaign insider they say speaks to Trump's criminal intent. What about Trump's other criminal cases? I mean, could those change the trial date for this one? Well, in theory, yes. And in the past, the judge and the DA here said they were amenable to changing the date. But as of now, there is no trial set before March 25th. Special counsel Jack Smith's January 6th case had been set for March 4th in Washington. But that trial date has been delayed while Trump argues he is immune from prosecution once again before the U.S. Supreme Court. So right now, it's very possible Trump's first criminal trial could be this one. And actually, since we're talking about New York, one more uh, New York-based Trump case we want to ask you about. This one is involving business fraud. Now, what's the status of that one? We could see a verdict in that case tomorrow. Hmm. This is the case where the judge already decided that Trump had engaged in business fraud, but had yet to determine how much money Trump would have to pay back to New York State for what the judge described during the trial as ill-gotten gains. The attorney general in New York wants $370 million, which she says is the amount of extra cash Trump got by lying to banks about the value of his assets. Lawyers for Trump argued way back in January. In fact, Trump himself argued when he went rogue and just started speaking directly to the judge during closing arguments that this was an unfair civil action based on ignorance of how real estate works. So if we get that verdict before the mm. week wraps up, we could have a judgment in that case 
and a criminal trial date set in New York for Donald Trump. NPR's Andrew Bernstein. Thanks a lot. Thank you. Thousands of Americans are still dying of drug overdoses, especially from synthetic opioids like fentanyl. And many deaths are happening inside homes. In Philadelphia, city workers are taking a new approach to try to prevent these fatal outcomes. They are going door to door. Nicole Leonard of member station WHYY has this report. All right, if I can have everybody's attention. We're in the parking lot of a Dunkin' Donuts in North Philly. This is today's meetup spot for a group of city canvassers who are all dressed in matching royal blue polos. We split off and head toward a block of row homes across the street. We pass by fast food restaurants, a bank, and a daycare center. Outreach worker Marcella Eli knocks on a door right next to a busy auto body shop. Hello, sir. How you doing today? Okay, hold on two seconds. My name is Marcella. I'm working with the city. You heard about the overdose that's going around in the neighborhood, right? Eli hands over booklets and guides on overdose awareness and local addiction treatment programs. She holds up a box of Narcan, a brand of the opioid overdose reversal medication, Naloxone. So basically what we're trying to do is we're trying to get this in everybody's household. You ever heard of this before? Everyone who answers the door today will be offered local education materials, fentanyl test strips, and Narcan. The goal of Philadelphia's massive canvassing project is to knock on more than 100,000 doors and overdose hotspots. These are zip codes with rising rates of overdose deaths, many in black and brown neighborhoods. Eli says many people are surprised to hear about overdose deaths in areas that don't appear in the headlines about the addiction epidemic. It's around. It's just people be quiet about it because they don't want you to know how their family members died. So it's really out here and people need to be aware of that. A record 1,413 people died in Philly in 2022 from drug overdoses, according to city data. Deaths were up 20% among Black residents from the year before, and many happened in private residences. Kaylee McLeod of the city's Opioid Response Unit says historically, Black and brown people have been targeted by the war on drugs. They continue to make up a disproportionate number of drug arrests and reports to Child Protective Services. Because of that, it's very clear why black or brown people might be hesitant to raise their hand and say, I'm a person who uses drugs. I need these resources. Dahlia Heller says this canvassing method of expanding access to a life-saving drug could be one of the most effective tactics she's ever seen in her 25-plus years of working in harm reduction. Heller is the vice president of drug use initiatives at Vital Strategies, a public health organization working with local governments in seven states to address the opioid epidemic. There's something intensely personal about a human engagement and somebody knocking at your door to talk about drug use and overdose risk and that there is something that can be done, I think, is really powerful. Heller hopes the door knocking and canvassing will encourage more conversations between family and friends about drug use. It's very emotional, right? Because what you're saying is, I wish you weren't using. I wish you weren't using, but you are, and I don't want you to die. North Philadelphia resident Catherine Camacho is just coming out of her garage when city canvassers approach her on the sidewalk. She knows about the problem in her community and eagerly accepts the Narcan. I will carry this with me because, like I said, sometimes you're in the street driving somewhere and you can save a life. And if you don't have these things, it's harder to do so, right? Camacho says she sees how the opioid crisis has caused suffering in her neighborhood and across the city and believes God is putting people on the ground to help. She wants to be among them. For NPR News, I'm Nicole Leonard in Philadelphia.
This is NPR News. Coming up in 10 minutes, the Marketplace Morning Report looks at how stores fared in January after we learned earlier this week that inflation isn't easing as quickly as hoped. Upper 30s and windy today with clouds moving in throughout the day. Upper 20s tonight and we'll get some snow starting after midnight. Around an inch of accumulation is expected for Boston. Mostly sunny and windy tomorrow in the upper 30s. It's 28 degrees in Boston. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Mass General Brigham Health Plan, offering innovative plans, comprehensive coverage, and a broad network of doctors, all connected to one of the world's leading healthcare systems. Mass General Brigham Health Plan, with you every day. For more information, call your broker or visit MassGeneralBrighamHealthPlan.org. The Massachusetts Senate plans to raise pay for its staff. The increase comes after a study last month found that pay wasn't competitive. Officials tell the Boston Globe the changes will include stipends, reimbursements, and increased salary ranges. They say they won't need to make any changes to the budget to accommodate the increases. New England utility company Eversource hopes to sell its aquarium water business. The company is pushing the sale at the same time when it's trying to get out of the offshore wind business. Aquarian serves roughly 240,000 customers. Company officials tell the Boston Globe they're trying to raise cash and pay down debt. Sublime Systems has announced a major expansion in Somerville. The company plans to increase space at its headquarters. Sublime has developed a fossil fuel-free replacement for traditional cement. Last year, the company announced plans to build its first manufacturing plant in Holyoke. It's 844. Funding for WBUR's business report comes from Feldman Geospatial. Committed to helping Boston build right from the ground up since 1946 and working to build community with Jazz Night, presenting live music weekly at the Long Live Brewery and Tap Room in Boston. Learn more at longlivebeerworks.com slash Boston. You're listening to WBMR's Morning Edition. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Milton residents appear to have struck down a plan allowing development of multifamily housing near public transportation. The plan would have brought the town into compliance with a state law that requires communities along MBTA corridors to allow for higher-density housing. Milton was the lone holdout among a dozen cities and towns facing a deadline to comply with the state law intended to help mitigate the region's housing crisis. Liz Dillon is co-chair of the Yes for Milton campaign in support of the new zoning changes, and she joins me now. Good morning. Good morning, Rupa. So for people who haven't been following this issue, can you tell us how we got to this result in Milton? Absolutely. So back in December, we had a town meeting vote where town meeting determined whether or not we would be in compliance with the December 31st deadline. And two-thirds of town meeting members voted yes. However, a petition was held and it was determined that we would have a referendum vote due to a bylaw in Milton. And we had a referendum vote originally scheduled for the 13th, moved to the 14th because of the snow. And here we are. So the successful no campaign argued that this plan would have clustered new housing in one area of the town, East Milton, and would have disproportionate impacts there. You actually live in and represent this neighborhood as a town meeting member. Do you think those claims were valid? 
Yeah, I definitely understand their concerns, Rupa. Actually, I believe that the multifamily housing would be spread throughout the town. It also already is spread throughout the town. I live in East Milton. I'm a town meeting member for East Milton. I'm on the board of the East Milton Neighborhood Association. And I don't see that those ill effects would have happened. But, you know, that's a difference of opinion. This really seemed to create a bitter divide in the town, and there was a lot of activity in the campaign on both sides. Why do you think that is? Well, I think it's really important to people, Rupa, Um, certainly very important to me. I think that most of that division probably happened on social media. I think that at the end of the day, we're still neighbors, and I'm hopeful that, you know, we can put this behind us and work together in the future to come into compliance with the law. So the governor has expressed disappointment in this result. Attorney General Andrea Campbell has said she's prepared to compel Milton to comply. Do you get the sense that people in the town are worried about state action? Yes, Rupa. But I think that the idea is that the No for Milton campaign is going to hopefully work together with our planning board to come up with a different plan. And so my hope is that we will come into compliance relatively quickly. And I hope that any ill effects on Milton will be very short lived. I think that's sort of the hope of most people. And is the Yes for Milton campaign going to be working with the no side to come up with that new plan? Yes, we're absolutely prepared to work with our elected officials, the planning board, the select board, and also the No for Milton campaign to come up with any kind of a plan that would bring us into compliance as rapidly as possible so that we don't lose out on critical state funding and so that any litigation will be very short-lived. In the meantime, what kind of message do you think this vote sends to other towns and cities who may not want to comply with this state law? Well, Rupa, that's a great question. I think it sends a very specific message. I absolutely do not want the town of Milton to be sued. I absolutely don't want to suffer any kind of ill effects. Um, So again, I hope that we can very quickly come into compliance and other towns will um, hopefully not feel emboldened by Milton to not comply as well. It definitely concerns me, however, because there are I believe, 155 or so other communities left to go um, to comply with the MBTA Communities Act. So it definitely is a worry of mine. Liz Dillon is co-chair of the Yes for Milton campaign. Thank you very much. Thank you so much, Rupa. Have a great day. Coming up at the top of the hour on WBUR, it's the BBC News Hour. They'll speak with Israeli officials who say their special forces have raided the main hospital in southern Gaza because of credible intelligence that Hamas was holding hostages there. Gaza's health ministry says heavy shooting wounded displaced people still sheltering at the hospital. It's 8:50. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Liz Linder Photography, creating portraits and stories for life and work. Pictures talk at LizLinder.com. Voters of color in a New York City suburb have a novel approach to protecting their voting rights, challenging a redistricting map under a state voting rights act. This is about housing. This is about resources for schools. About environmental justice. Always have to fight for everything we, we need. And now we have to fight for representation. That story on All Things Considered from NPR News. 
Listen today starting at 4 on 90.9 WBUR. Here's a look at some of the stories we're following this Thursday morning. Kansas City officials say three people have been detained and firearms have been recovered after a shooting at a Super Bowl celebration that killed one person and injured many others. In an interview on Russian state television, President Vladimir Putin says he would prefer to see President Joe Biden with a second term because he's more experienced and predictable than Republican frontrunner former President Donald Trump. And Greece is set to become the first Orthodox Christian country to legalize same-sex marriage. Stay up to date on the news all day here on 90.9 WBUR and on the WBUR app. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Lauren Holleran with Gibson Sotheby's International Realty in Cambridge, real estate brokerage that is grounded in data and committed to thoughtful design. LaurenHolleran.com. Increasingly overcast and windy today in the upper 30s, upper 20s, and still windy tonight. Snow starts after midnight and may bring about an inch to the Boston area. Tomorrow, gusty winds move clouds out and we'll have a mostly sunny Friday back in the upper 30s. It's 28 degrees in Boston. Are high prices finally catching up with consumers? Marketplace Morning Report is supported by Otter.ai. If someone's late to a meeting, Otter's AI-powered meeting assistant catches them up with a real-time meeting summary. More at Otter.ai. From Marketplace, I'm Sabri Beneshore, in for David Brancaccio. We just got retail sales figures for January. They fell more than expected, down eight-tenths of a percent from the month before. Consumers have been complaining about high prices, so now it looks like they're pulling back more. Marketplace's Nancy Marshall-Genzer joins me now. Morning, Nancy. Good morning, Sabri. So you go to the store. It's obvious why consumers are upset. The Consumer Price Index came out earlier this week and was higher than expected. What does that mean for the Federal Reserve's fight against inflation? Well, Fed Chair Jerome Powell has said many times that inflation is not going to slow down at a nice, even pace. Of course, Sabri, the Fed is keeping interest rates high to cool the economy and tamp down inflation. Uh, yesterday, Chicago Fed President Austin Goolsby said we shouldn't get flipped out, his words, over one higher than expected inflation reading. He says inflation is still progressing toward the Fed's 2% target. And Tuesday's unexpectedly high CPI reading does not mean the Fed will rule out an interest rate cut later this year. So when we get back down to that target, does that mean prices go back to normal? It depends what you mean by normal, Sabri. Uh, and Goolsby made it clear the Fed isn't trying to get prices back down to where they were before the pandemic. To do that, you'd have to have very substantial deflation. Deflation has a bunch of other problems associated with it. You'd probably have to tank the economy to do it. And Goolsby says the Fed's mandate is just to get inflation back to 2%. It doesn't have a target for prices. Does inflation have to get to that 2% target before the Fed starts cutting interest rates? Not necessarily. Uh, at his press conference last month, Fed Chair Powell said waiting until inflation gets to 2% would actually be too late. Goolsby echoed that yesterday. He says the Fed can lower rates when it's confident inflation is just on a path toward the 2% target. All right. Marketplace's Nancy Marshall-Genzer. Thank you so much. You're welcome. So inflation might be slowly slowing down, but as the Chicago Fed president said, those prices aren't as a whole actually going to come back down. 
And one place consumers turn to in such times is store brands, technically called private labels. Those are the like medicines that have the exact same chemical ingredients as the name brand stuff, but are cheaper. This week, Target announced a revamp for its store brand, Up and Up, with improvements in quality, packaging, and hundreds of new items. Marketplace's Megan McCarty Carino has more. Private label sales now generate about a quarter of a trillion dollars a year in the U.S., according to retail consultant Matthew Hamery at Alex Partners. And they've been gaining market share the last couple of years. You know, with inflation and maybe a looming recession, private label can really come more into its own, right, because the value proposition is even stronger. Some retailers are now copying Trader Joe's with unique and high-quality private label products you can't buy anywhere else. But most are what Hamry refers to as name-brand equivalents, or in internet speak, dupes. Get excited. Today is the video you have been waiting for, the Target skincare dupes you need to know about. Dupe videos like that one have helped turn many young consumers onto off-brands and even given them a kind of cachet, says Americus Reed, a marketing professor at the Wharton School. The anti-brand brand movement, it's just it's a different way to create a different meaning system, but it's still a brand. He says it's what helped make Target Target. I'm Megan McCarty Carino for Marketplace. All right, let's do the numbers. Dow, S&P, and NASDAQ futures are all up in the 2 to 3 tenths percent range, with Dow futures up 110 points. The yield on the 10-year Treasury is 4.197%. Marketplace Morning Report is supported by Schwab. Schwab knows that investors want control of their financial future. That's why when it comes to wealth management, Schwab is dedicated to giving investors more choices. More at schwab.com. And by C3 Generative AI, verified traceable answers, secure, hallucination-free, LLM agnostic, IP liability-free. Learn more at C3.ai. Since President Biden took office, more than 3.6 million people have gotten their federal loans forgiven in full to the tune of nearly $132 billion. For a lot of them, that's been because of temporary changes the administration made to existing programs, including public service loan forgiveness and income-driven repayment. But if you are one of the people who had their loans forgiven last year, what does it mean for your taxes? Marketplace's Samantha Fields reports. Betsy Mayotte has made a career out of giving people free student loan advice. She founded a nonprofit called the Institute of Student Loan Advisors. So she gets questions all the time about all things student debt related, including taxes. I work with a lot of borrowers that are afraid of pursuing forgiveness because they have this vision of the IRS coming after them for, you know, a six-figure tax bill. But she says for now, that fear is unfounded. In 2021, as part of the American Rescue Plan, Congress temporarily changed the law so that student loan forgiveness is not considered taxable income. So if the forgiveness happens by the end of 2025, there will be no federal tax on it. That's a big deal, says Adam Minsky, a lawyer who specializes in student loans. Loan forgiveness is typically taxed as income, as if the borrower earned the canceled balance in income in the year in which it was forgiven. And when you're forgiving large balances, you know, obviously that can potentially result in a fairly significant tax bill that could be due all at once. But again, anyone who got forgiveness in 2023 or anyone who gets it in the next two years doesn't have to worry. Not about federal taxes anyway. As for state taxes, Francine Lippman at the University of Nevada, Las Vegas, says it depends where you live. Each state has its own tax system. Many states 
piggyback on the federal rules. Which means most states aren't taxing people on student loan forgiveness either. But John Buell at the Urban Brookings Tax Policy Center says a few are. The states where I think taxpayers need to be the most cautious are Indiana, Mississippi, North Carolina, Wisconsin. And Arkansas. In those five, Buell says, some kinds of student loan forgiveness will be considered taxable income. No one wants to see a shock when they file their returns, but state taxes are considerably lower than federal taxes. So for those that do get a shock, he says, it'll at least be smaller than it could have been. I'm Samantha Fields for Marketplace. And in New York, I'm Sabri Beneshore with the Marketplace Morning Report. From APM American Public Media. Windy and increasingly cloudy today in the upper 30s. Tonight, temperatures may dip into the 20s and snow starts after midnight with about an inch of accumulation in Boston. Then we end the week with a windy and mostly sunny Friday in the upper 30s. It's 28 degrees in Boston and the BBC News Hour is coming up next. I'm All Things Considered host Lisa Mullins, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.